You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Frum is the author of Dead Right, What's Right, The New Conservative Majority and the Remaking of America, Comeback, Conservatism That Can Win Again, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic, and Trumpocalypse, Return to American Democracy. Thank you for joining me, David. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You know, um, this book, it, one of the things I, I liked about this book is that this book focuses a lot on um, philosophy <laughs> and, and, and the thoughts and the structure behind the policy and what gets done and said in conservatism. And I think that's a really important thing to do right now. Well, thank you. I've tried, um, although the word Trump appears in two book titles, I try to not to focus too much on the personality of, of Donald Trump. Um, there are 330 million or so people in the United States. I'm sure many of them are dysfunctional human beings with um, all kinds of disorders. Uh, the reason we have the complicated political system we do is in order to screen those people away from political power. So the story I'm interested in is not what's wrong with this person, because that's all obvious, but what's wrong with the political system that it didn't screen him away from power? You know, uh, you, you talk about at the very beginning of the book, you talk about um, what will happen after and what you say. And I think this is very important that Trump may serve the people who put him in power out of office even better as a source of resentment and a symbol of betrayal than he ever did in office. Could you tell me why you think that's important? Well, think about it from the point of if you're a Fox News host um, and, and what you want to do is bait the liberals and um, point out how ungrateful minorities are and um, uh, you know, t- talk about how um, football players aren't you know doing the things you want them to do and all of that. Um, the problem with Donald Trump is he inserts himself into the news by doing something so crazy and upsetting at such frequent – even your viewers um, are bothered by it. And so you can't focus on the ungrateful minorities because there's this problem that the president has told people that the solution to a global pandemic is to inject disinfectant into their bodies. And it's just too big a story to ignore but too embarrassing a story to defend and it, it knocks you off your narrative. Once he's gone, the um, the job of stoking resentment will be a lot simpler and easier. You know, what this book provides something that I think we really lack. We live in a time where you have this continuous feed of news coverage across all swaths of the spectrum, and, and you can put it together any way you want, but it's very difficult for us as news consumers to get perspective and to really get the story. And I think what a book like this provides is perspective and story so that no matter what happens after the book is published, it's informed greatly by what you understand from reading the book. And I think that's a really big service and very important in this time when news is used not to inform but to distract. Well, that thank you very much. And, and it is important to remember when we talk about news. Uh, 
you know, people who are really attuned to the news, like the people listening to you, when they say media, um, they mean some, they mean perhaps the New York Times, they mean perhaps CNN, they mean some more or less traditional company that sees its job as the provision of reliable information um, in return for some kind of direct economic support, either through subscriptions or advertising. But the most important media company in the country by far is Facebook. And the second most important media company in the country uh, is YouTube, owned by Google. And they, their business is very different. They need engagement. They're not there to inform you. They're there to upset you. Um, the, the, the more you watch things that make you upset and the longer you stay at Facebook, the more opportunity Facebook has to sell you to other people. And so we see um, that an increasingly important source of information for, for Americans are these viral videos that exist to create emotion. And what I always plead with people to remember is that every video that you see, um, somebody made a decision to start it at a certain point and to finish it at a certain point. And there's part of the story that is there before the video starts and after it finishes. And these videos are inherently misleading. I mean, I hate to upset anybody. Dogs actually can't play Jenga. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That, so that, that video is a manufactured object that was there. I mean, that one is there to delight, not to upset. But that, that if you think about how that video was made and then realize all the other videos that get you excited are manufactured in the same way. Um, and we need, um, if we're going to be good citizens, we need to live in an information environment that doesn't just try to play on our emotions, but actually appeals um, to the more evolved parts of our brain. One of the things that you do at the beginning of this book is give a series of flashpoints. I'd like you to explain what you mean by the term flashpoints and how you chose these flashpoints and the ordering of them as you lay them out to the reader so that we are immersed in this, uh, what is a very important vision of our culture as well as our politics. Yes. Well, Donald Trump is a politician who has um, used political conflict as a political resource. Um, and all politicians do this to some degree, but they, they balance it, uh, by also trying to appeal to unify, to extend his, their coalition. Don, Donald Trump has never tried to broaden his coalition. He's never tried to be president of all of the United States. That's, I, I have joked, but it's not a joke. Um, he is the president of the white people of the red States of America. So these, these <laughs> points of conflict, these points, that, they're his source of power. And so I, I try to go through the points of conflict and to say, if you want to head off future Trumps, you need to resolve some or m mitigate, contain some of these conflicts. You know, for me, one of the things that I, that I find most disturbing about this entire patch of our uh, cultural life is, I guess over the, maybe about the past 15 or 20 years, we've seen the importance of facts destroyed, annihilated, so that we no longer have, you know, um, you can choose your opinions, but you can't choose your facts. Now you can choose both and choose the right. facts that support your opinions. And this has been incredibly destructive because if you were a manager, for example, at, at a company, and you get, get a lot of facts in the form of feedback from customers saying, that guy is a really bad employee. And you mm -hmm. don't get rid of that bad employee 
or that's a really bad practice you have and that you don't get rid of that bad practice, you're going to go out of business because of the facts, no matter how much you can tell a great story about that employee or that practice. And, mm-hmm. and we have come to the point where we are like Wiley Coyote running way off the cliff on some kind of narrative that has no facts to support it. And we're going to be plummeting very soon, no matter what we buy from Acme. Yeah. Well, it is an amazing thing we've been able to turn into a culture war issue. The question, should Americans wear a face mask during a time of an airborne pathogen? Um, that, you know, in, in other countries, um, you know, the British uh, just went through this agonizing debate over whether they should exit the European Union. A very hard question with important concerns on both sides. But but the question, should you wear a mask during an airborne pathogen? It's like ask, having a culture war. Should you wear mittens when it's cold outside? I mean, left, right, center, we all get cold fingers. We all understand if it's cold outside, we should wear, wear, wear gloves or mittens. Um, we all understand that if we should understand that if there's an airborne pathogen, a mask can help keep us all safe, and you can have whatever you, feeling you want about truly political issues. It, but it's in everybody's interest just to wear this thing, um, and yet we've been able to create this tremendous divide. Just a few minutes before you and I began our conversation, uh, the FDA removed um, its emergency permission to use certain anti-malarial drugs as. Um, uh, remedies for uh, COVID-19. And this is another example of this. I mean, it's been apparent from the very start that these drugs didn't work and that they only got their special permissions. They were driven by the president in response to the most fact in different parts of his coalition. And yet we have, we, um, we have invested enormous amounts of money. We bought ten, uh, tens of millions of doses from India. Um, and we've generally made fools of ourselves over something that it was just apparent to all scientists from the beginning didn't work. You know, the anti-science bias of the Trump administration is is also, I think, inherently become more and more, and frighteningly so, a part of the Republican platform. And the Republican platform itself seems to consist at this point of lies, hypocrisy, and fact denial. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this is, not, this is not a partisan issue. It's not even exactly a left-right issue. We're living in a time when a lot of the old um, – the, the map of politics we inherited is becoming obsolete. So let me ask you, if we're talking about science, um, is it more left-wing or right-wing to refuse vaccinations for childhood diseases? Um, that's as – as big a problem, you know, where, where you are talking in the Bay Area as, oh, it, is, yeah. it, as it is in, in, in right-wing places. What about this lunacy that um, cellular telephone towers are responsible for COVID-19 and other diseases? Is that a left-wing or a right-wing delusion? That spreads across the spectrum. Um, I think you're, you're, you, you are as likely to find um, people who love – people who you're likely to find people on the so-called left watching RT – um, on the internet, as you are people from the former right, um, and absorbing their disinformation. So, so I think it's it's more that we have a culture, a cultural divide between um, people who want a, an information diet based on um, scientific evidence and people who don't. But it, it doesn't map to, you know, what side of the issues of 1990 you were on. I, well, that's true, but the damage that has spread through 
our political system as a result of this is, I think, really uh, significant. And it's going to be difficult to remove, as you would point out, even when Trump goes, because there will still be big chunks of people on both sides of the spectrum that deny facts. And when you deny facts, you lose the ability to make choices in the real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, your, your, pol- your policies are unlikely to deliver success. <laughs> And and that we saw that with this pandemic, and and now we have to worry uh, if, as global warming um, force presents itself, will we respond as badly to that as we've responded to the pandemic? Uh, I, I was uh, heartened to see your writing about uh, global warming in this book, and, and you know, Earth's climate change that were that is in the process of happening right now it's a very much a boiling a frog kind of alternative it happens so slowly it's you know easy Mm -hmm. to not worry about it yeah well we we had a period where um it it has been easy between about 1980 and 1998 um the the climate of the planet warmed very fast and then for reasons that Maybe somebody understands. I don't understand. Between about 1998 and 2012, the warming trend paused. And so through for almost a decade and a half, people could say, well, look, 1998 was the peak year. And since then, we, you know, it's, it's, it's backed off a little bit. So maybe we don't need to worry about this very much. But since 2012, um, the warming trend has resumed and it, it has accelerated. And we are breaking the 19, we broke the 1998 record in, I think, 2015 and again in 2017 and again in 2018. And I think uh, possibly in 2019 too, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, maybe there'll be another pause. Um, maybe not. But the real lesson of the pandemic is we had a number of pandemic alarms. We had bird flu, sorry, yeah, bird flu in 2005. We had swine flu in 2009. And none of them became the truly global menace that um, the coronavirus did. But we should have listened to those warnings. And on climate, we should listen to the warnings we're getting now. You write here a quote, one of your uh uh, Atlanta colleagues, Adam Serwer, whose essay, The Cruelty is the Point, um, is one of the iconic phrases of the Trump era. And I think that this is true. And I'd like you to talk about how that works for him and how that works against him. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I mean, Adam's phrase and Adam's essay are, are very important statements of the Trump era. Um, I quoted them, though, in a little bit to dissent from them to make because one of the things I'm very I, I'm very determined to do is to get people to sort of have a realistic operational view of um, how Trump gains power, how he uses power and how we can protect the country from him. So I comment so I, that. Cruelty is the point um, section in, in Trumpocalypse. I talk a lot about um, uh, how this experiment with separating children from their parents at the border got going and how no one really planned it. It, it was something that started as a very local experiment uh, as a way to deter people, not as a way to incarcerate children, but as a way to deter people from coming in the first place. Um, in the very small section of the El Paso border where it was tried, it seemed to work. And so it was – but. It wasn't real science. It just was like an, an example. And it got scaled up on a hu- uh, very rapidly until suddenly there are thousands of children in detention. So writing about this, I quote um, Oscar Wilde, who served time in prison, of course. And 
wrote a book afterwards about some of the cruelties he had seen in prison, especially cruelties to children, because in those days the British jailed children as young as 10 and 12 with adults. And Wilde wrote about cruelty that um, very little of it is inflicted by people who intend to be cruel. Instead, he said, cruelty or it, uh, cruel, the kind of cruelty he had seen in a British prison, quote, is simply stupidity. It comes from the entire want of imagination. It is the result in our days of stereotype systems, of hard and fast rules, of centralization, of officialism, and of irresponsible authority. And that phrase about irresponsible authority, I think, really contains a powerful message. When that, That's what's going on in these, these instances of police brutality. I mean, some of the police horribly seem to be enjoying themselves. But most of them just, I got a job, I've got some power, and I don't have to think very hard about what responsibility attaches to this power. So I'm just going to take the easy way and hit this teenager with a stick because she walked on um, uh, she she walked on the road when she should have walked on the sidewalk. You know, one of the things I think you write about, and I think this is important, this book is a way not just for us to understand what has happened to us and is happening to us, but also you're, this book is preventive. You want to help us to have to stop this from happening again. And one of the things you you say is, unless Americans act now to demolish it, Trump's construction of impunity will shadow the American landscape for years to come. So talk about the wall of impunity that he's created around himself, the, the idea that he's above the law. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Donald Trump has a lot of legal jeopardy, um, in both in his uh, business life before he became president, as president. He, um, he's done a lot of corrupt things, some of them illegal, some of them um, at least embarrassing um, or should be embarrassing. And so he has needed to protect himself from, um, uh, from law enforcement. And a lot of his uh, abuses – I don't think Donald Trump exactly had an intention to – he, as we've all seen, he, he's he's lazy and he doesn't have big political ideas. He, he you know, this is not um, one of the fascist dictators of the 1930s with a grand vision. Instead, this is the guy with a lot of vulnerabilities. And so he has to shut down the law to protect himself from those vulnerabilities. Um, so you also say, too, that you talk about the the Mueller report and I think that your quite the questions you ask about it and what happened with that are really important for us to understand yeah. why that was such a, a big as they might say nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, wrote in early 2017 against appointing um, a special counsel to investigate the Russia matter, and I I talked a lot about this on television. I, I I'm a frequent guest, especially on the O'Donnell program on MSNBC, and again and again I said this is not going to lead to pro- promising results because what special counsels do, and especially one who's as by the book as Robert Mueller, is they look for prosecutable crimes, and a good counsel like Mueller, if he comes across something that is not a spot, uh, a prosecutable crime, it's his job. He takes it as his job to ignore this thing. Um, you know, if, if you, um, are supposed to be investigating a bank fraud and you discover, well, the, there was no bank fraud, but the bank manager was cheating on her husband. Um, if you're a good prosecutor, that's none of your business. You're there to look for a prosecutable crime and cheating on her husband is not a prosecutable crime. It's not, your, it's not your job to be everybody's supervisor. The problem is that 
most of the things that connected Trump to Russia were not crimes. It is not a crime for a private American businessman to owe, owe a lot of money, even to very bad people in Russia. Um, it's not a crime for him to sell apartments to people, even if you strongly suspect that those people want the apartments in order to launder money. Um, and you know, there, there were some things that Donald Trump did as a private citizen that may have been crimes, but they're they're usually outside the statute of limitations. Like um, you know that that notorious deal that uh, Rachel Maddow talks about so much, where he um, sold a house to a Russian um, at a price that makes you think that would have that there were kickbacks and money laundering. But that all happened in two thousand and five in Florida, where the statute of limitations is four years. So they're not a prosec. They may be crimes, but they're not prosecutable crimes. Um, and so again and again that. Uh, everything we really wanted to know would be something that Mueller decided from the beginning is none of his business. And the things that Mueller decided were his business were things that weren't that important. I mean, we all knew that the Russians hacked. We don't need to have a bunch of indictments of the Russians who hacked. We, we'll never get our hands on those people. What is the point of that? What we, we needed was information and we got an attempt to prosecute and the prosecutions, of course, failed. You know, one thing you say in this book I thought was really fascinating insight was that essentially what Donald Trump is running is an affinity scam con man scheme. So explain what you mean to that by that and how that's working for him. Well, um, people who study white, white collar crime note that a lot of frauds prey on people who have some kind of affinity with um with the fraudster. So the Ponzi scheme, there was a Mr. Ponzi um, back in the 1920s who um, invented or who, um, s developed on a huge scale the Ponzi scheme in the United States. And he preyed on fellow Italian immigrants. Uh, Bernie Madoff um, in his frauds uh, preyed on um, religious Jews uh, who trusted him because he was felt like one of their own. Well, Donald Trump does that to people who trust him. And we're going to see this um, in the next days, uh, he is about to pack thousands of people into a, an indoor stadium in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they are at great risk of getting sick. Now, you're probably not going to go, and your friends are probably not going to go, and I'm not going to go. My friends are not going to go. But the people who are going to go are people who trust Donald Trump and think he has their interests at heart, and he's going to make them sick. And he's also going to uh, ask them to sign in advance, uh, uh, click a button, as it were, that says he they promise not to blame him if that happens. And right. I'm guessing they won't. That that the those who get sick and even those who die will say, "Well, I was part of the great moment." Right, and um, he has always. You know, if you're skeptical of him, you've got some immunity to him. But he has always taken advantage of the people who have trusted them. That he has never had their in, their interests at heart. And and this is one of the ways in which he's um, he's different from previous Americans who tried to play this part. I mean that that the George Wallaces the um, and other kinds of demagogues in American history they did profoundly identify. Uh, with the people whose grievances they were channeling. Donald Trump doesn't. Um, he's a snob who hates his own followers. I mean, uh, he is always complaining about why is he not regarded as an, a member of the elite himself, that he has an apartment on Fifth Avenue and um, went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania. 
Why isn't he seen as fancy? He, he doesn't like, he doesn't relish the, being a plain person in plain clothes the way George Wallace did. He would like to be thought of as a candidate. Well, what you say is, um, too, that Trump has imagined the whole American nation as an extension of his ego. And I think that's a really important point because he is, for all that he uses the, the, the word as a disparaging phrase to taunt his enemies, he and much of the conser- many of the conservatives who follow him are very much the snowflakes they so hate to see on the left. Yeah. Well, I think just generally, it's a pretty good sign that when you see somebody using the word snowflake, that you're dealing with a pretty tender flower. Um, and <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm constantly amazed how, um, and the president himself is the most tender of tender flowers. I mean, his feelings are so sensitive. Um, and, you know, any of us, I mean, those of us who are, you know, in, involved in public life in any degree, I, of course you take heat. That's just part of, that's just part of the nature of things. But Trump that is is unbecoming and one of the things i talk about in the book one of the rare moments where i do talk about psychology um i talk about how alone he is he doesn't have faith in god he doesn't have intimate family relationships he doesn't have friendships he doesn't even have a pet and he sure doesn't have what often sustains president a deep connection to american history and a deep vision of the american future he's just got himself and his own appetites and his own feelings and and he's terribly alone and we all suffer as a result nowhere more than in the field of foreign relations and foreign policy you're writing about the foreign policy in this book i think it's really important for us to understand where we're going the kind of world we're going to emerge into whether he's reelected or not because we used to be surrounded by those who supported us those who admired us those who were friends of us those who looked up to us those who saw us as a tower of strength and, and um righteousness now what they see is a a petty tyrant ready to strike out at those he doesn't like since about 1890 the united states has been the largest economy in the world and when it has faced challengers um it has faced challengers who were just not as strong as the United States, um, or they were econ- like even Nazi Germany was economically totally dysfunctional, um, and of course the Soviet Union was too. Uh, and the United States has always been um, at the center of a coalition of like-minded countries. I mean, not since before the Civil War and the heyday of the British Empire has the United States been a number two to anybody on this earth. But in the 21st century, the United States is going to, for the first time since the British Empire, going to have to face a peer competitor in China. Um, so the Chinese economy remains still smaller than that of the United States, and China is technologically inferior in some ways, and obviously it doesn't have a, an, an exciting political system to offer. But sometime by 2030, it's going to be about the same size as the United States, and it can't be bullied in the way that Donald Trump imagines he can bully other countries. So if you're going to, we've all seen this in the pandemic, China does really dangerous things. It, um, it pollutes the air, it pollutes the water, it emits carbon, um, it has a terrible regimen for infectious disease. Again and again, these e- epidemics of bird flu and swine flu start in China, and as, as, as this disease did. Um, we, need, 
we need to check that behavior, but we can't do it by ourselves. Yet Trump has made America alone. And this is the thing I worry about so much and drive so much of my writing is I, I grew up, I was born in Canada. I retain a lot of connections there. I have a house there. Um, I grew up under that sense of a global coalition of liberal democracies headed by the United States, undergirded by US power. And it made for a world that in retrospect we can see was a safe, safer and stabler world than the one we have now. Um, we need to put that together again. But Donald Trump's vision of an America alone rejects that possibility and is dangerous for not just America, but for the democratic idea. Presciently, you have a chapter in this book titled White Terror. And I think that we are currently experiencing the, the fruits of that poisonous tree. So talk about looking at the racial and social wars that, that uh, Donald Trump has started and perpetuated. And even now, even like to this very day, he he's making things worse when it wouldn't be. It's harder to make things worse than to make them better. Right. Well, we have um, through the past half, half decade been dealing with. I, I don't think it's over dramatic to say this: a kind of global terrorist insurgency um, in the name of white nationalist ideology. Mm -hmm. um, it. It's, it has struck not only in the United States with our easy access to guns at places like the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh. Um, it's struck in New Zealand where um, an Australian gunman who admired Donald Trump attacked a mosque. Um, and all and I have a long list of these. And it really does – this is one – while most areas of crime have become less severe in recent years, this is one area that has become more severe and it's become more severe globally. And it, it's a little bit like um, – what has happened with this is a little bit like the way ISIS – followed Al-Qaeda. So Al-Qaeda, Al that Islamic terrorist movement, was a real organization um, that if you wanted to join Al-Qaeda, you had to get on a plane and go to wherever bin Laden was, uh, you know, um, first in Sudan, then in uh, Afghanistan, and you had to go through a program and there you had contact with other human beings and they told you what to do and mobilized you into a collective undertaking. The way ISIS worked in the West was um, it was a social media terrorist enterprise. I mean, you went to them online. You didn't travel to them in person. And you and they gave you an ideology and they gave you ideas about how to commit violence, but they didn't train you and they didn't give you weapons. You had to do that on your own. And then you would set yourself in – you would choose your own target and you would set yourself in motion. And then you would do something um, on social media or online to indicate that you were doing this on behalf of this ideology, but you were a lone actor. Um, the, the, the terrible killing in Paris, that nightclub in what year was that? 2014, the best, um, you know, that was done by people who were acting on their own. Well, these white nationalist killers are very much on the ISIS model. They find a community online. They find ideas online. They, they inspire each other with targets, but they get their own weapons. They do their own training and, uh, they, they, they self-start and they are murderous. Uh, for all of that, um, the Pulse nightclub, which we just observed the, just a few days ago, the commemoration of, uh, is another example of this. Um, and they have a complicated relationship to the Trump presidency because obviously Trump does not endorse that kind of behavior. He makes it very clear. Um, and many of them have ambivalent feelings about him. They, um, for, um, you know, they, they don't lose sight of the fact that his daughter-in-law married a Jewish man and his grandchildren are being raised as Jews. But they do see him as in some way an inspiration, if not a leader. 
you know, um, you also, it's not just uh, the, the neo-Nazis that are, are problematic. I mean, you quote, and I remember seeing this, the, the chilling video by Dana Lesh of the of NRA. I mean, that is uh, actually <laughs> quite frightening to read that unless you are, you know, right there on the right side, as it were, of, of that idea. Right. Well, um, there, uh, you saw this from, um, and, and this is one of the ways the NRA responded to the Trump years. So um, the NRA exists to um, sell memberships and sell weapons. It's a business. It's not really, um, uh, it's, it's not really um, an advocacy group. And the people involved with the NRA are engaged in ma massive self-dealing. And Tim Mack at NPR has done good reporting about this. Uh, when Trump succeeded Obama, ironically, that became a big threat to the NRA business model because it was just obvious. They're not going to be, I mean, Obama didn't do much to control weapons either, couldn't, but, um, talked about it, but you know, never really tried it and would have failed had he tried. Donald Trump made it very clear, we're not going to try at all. Uh, so what was there to be worried about? Why should you give money to the NRA? Um, and indeed, given that, um, you already the, the typical gun owner already has lots of weapons already. Why go out and buy three or four more this year right now before Hillary Clinton takes them away? If Donald Trump is president, you can postpone that gun purchase, which is very threatening to the economics of the gun industry. So the NRA needed to find a new reason for being. And what they found was stoking this generalized um, extremist ideology of paranoia that drifted away from specifically the gun issue um, to a general politics of racial hostility, group, cultural hostility. Um, and that's what Dana Loesch was stoking in that video. Um, and um, and that that's one of the things, that, that's in the air. And, it's, and we can see it now influencing a lot of people's response to the pandemic, driving people. Uh, why do you bring guns to a pandemic? If you're a, even if you're a weirdo, you know, um, person who doesn't believe that COVID is real. Why bring the guns? Are we going to shoot the virus? Have to be a pretty good shot. Uh, <laughs> but they do because it feeds into the general mood of paranoia to which guns are the answer. You know, there's, uh, um, you can now buy a hat that says make Orwell fiction again. But yes. it's not just 1984 that we're getting a dose of these days. What we're really getting a dose of is Animal Farm because there's a whole... You write about this in your book. There's a whole bunch of people who think they're more equal than the rest of us, and that this is you, uh, you know, the real and unreal Americans. Which is to say that the people in the hinterlands, out in the, the rural areas, who are, make up very few numbers but cover a vast swath of land, seem to want to uh, have more say than the people who are work. Living closer together right. in the cities. Um, I, I talk that I talk about this in, in Trumpocalypse. That the essence of what we, the ideology we call populism, which tends not to be very popular, um, <laughs> is that it, it it draws a boundary between people and the people, and it speaks for the people, but not all people are part of the people. And as an example of this, I quote Sarah Palin's quite good speech at the 2008 Republican convention where she was nominated to be John McCain's running mate. And she, she had this very evocative passage about small towns. We breed good people in our small towns and listed all the virtues of the people who live in small towns, all of which I'm sure is 100% true and they are wonderful. Um, 
But I, I try to watch. Now, just imagine uh, a speaker at a, a Democratic convention standing up and saying, I'm from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We breed good people on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, full of generosity and, and lift all their virtues, because which I'm sure are also true, because they're also wonderful. I mean, we would all think that was weird. I mean, even the people on the Upper West Side would think that was weird. You don't talk that way. No one ever gives people on the Upper West Side compliments. No one ever says, you know, Hollywood, one of the great American industries. We've been, that's just not how we talk. Um, and, and, and yet, um, there are, as I point out in this, I mean, there, there are more uh, that, uh, I, I quoted a story in the, in the Washington Post where they, in, they go to this town where, um, in Ohio that voted strongly for Trump and they interview people and go in the diners and all that cliche. And I point out this town has a smaller population than the Westwood neighborhood of Los Angeles. Why is this town considered the center of what it means to be an American <laughs> when Westwood in, you know, the Westwood neighborhood in Los Angeles is not that in, you know, Luzerne, Pennsylvania, which is this county, which has been, um, my God, it's been like the center of sociological studies in the Trump era. That's where Hazelton is. And hundreds of articles have been written about Luzerne. It's the center of Selena Zito's book. And Luzerne has a bigger population than some of the other areas. It's still less than Manhattan, south of Washington Square Park. And, you know, why is it Manhattan? Manhattan's part of America. And Bugs, who's more American than Bugs Bunny? He's from New York. <laughs> yeah. He moved, he moved to L.A., though. He moved to L.A. and got a pool. But <laughs> <laughs> and, and he hopes he, he keeps his gun in case somebody needs to hunt down that wascally wabbit. Yeah. Now, um, you also write, too, about how uh, gerrymandering has changed the political landscape in a way that's copacetic with this more equal than others so that when you say, when they said, and you, this is really thought-provoking, you said that many people who um, heard Trump say that there were three million illegal votes pro probably didn't believe him because it's kind of crazy. But they thought, well, the three million people who did vote for Trump really probably just shouldn't have been voting anyway because they're not right. real Americans. And, and right. I think that... that come from gerrymandering, leads to gerrymandering. Right. And we've had an explosion of gerrymandering. Um, look, gerrymandering goes back, as its very name suggests, to the earliest days in American history. The first gerrymander, and it was originally pronounced with a hard G, was named for a governor of Massachusetts um, in the first decades of the new republic, of the founding of the republic. So it's an old, old American tradition. Um, there, But in recent years, uh, it has come under check. Um, it was checked by the 1965 Voting Civil Voting Rights Act. Um, it was checked by um, uh, Supreme Court decisions. And it was checked also by the practices of the parties, where um, the parties became aware, well, if we do this in our states, the other guys will do it in their states. And that maybe going too far is in nobody's interest. But in the past 10 years, two things happened. Uh, one was the court's very much stepped away from policing the fairness of boundaries. And in 2013, the court, the Supreme Court, um, struck down large parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the second thing that happened was the Republicans won a huge series of victories in 2010, a census year, that then empowered them to do very radical gerrymandering in 2011 without fear of deterrence by the Democrats. And so we got, in the 2010s, an especially 
distorted electoral map, both for state and for federal elections, with the result that, for example, in Wisconsin, in 2018, the Republicans got 45% of the vote for all the for both houses of the legislature, and yet got almost two thirds of the seats. So I talk a lot about this, and I offer some solutions to do something about it by um, bringing in a new Voting Rights Act, which the Supreme Court in 2013 urged Congress to do. They didn't say this, the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. They said that it was obsolete; that it no longer it was based on ideas that no longer applied. Um, and so the way is open to write a new Voting Rights Act, and the way is open also to restore deterrence and to um, have the two parties say each to the other, don't go too far. This book, I think, is very interesting in the way you balance uh, between looking at what has happened and suggesting things based on, on a, on a well-understood and well-thought-out conservative ideology that, um, you know, ways to, to meet the things that have happened and fix them for the better for everything. And I'd like you to talk about, you know, the if somebody's going to college right now and they say, I'm majoring in philosophy, you're going to say you're nuts. We need more philosophy majors, though, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I was a history major and uh, so <laughs> in college, so so I saw them. I, I greeted them with uh, some suspicion. I, I'm reminded, though, of a wonderful line of a, someone who of a philosophy professor in a course I did take who, when he was wrestling with his choice whether to study uh, philosophy or literature, um, his academic advisor said, study philosophy, you can always read novels on the train. <laughs> Do you think that um, one of the things that is, Trump has done is really to distort the understanding of what is conservative and He's in doing so. He's threatening to take down the the Repo Republican Party. It, it looks like that could be very well be an outcome of this upcoming election unless they sweep it all, all across too. So, talk about the what Trump has created and how that's been superimposed, kind of like you know projected on top of what was there before. Mm-hmm. Um, well. Uh, there's no question that, that Trump um, builds on things in the American past. Um, he also uh, reflects something that is going on worldwide. I mean, there are many Trumps in Hungary and in Poland, and um, there's Bolsonaro in Brazil, and there's Ober Lopez Obrador in Mexico, who in many ways is a very Trumpy figure. Also, by the way, convinced that the virus um, is a fake and that we don't need to take measures against it. You, you write... Early in the Trump years, some feared that Trump might try to politicize the military in his direction. We've seen that happen, and we've seen the military push back, and I think that that is something that must have been heartening to uh, many Americans, even if you don't necessarily support Trump. Yeah, well, many institutions have failed, and I detail that those failures in Trump apocalypse. Congress failed, uh, Justice Department failed, important parts of the federal bureaucracy failed, the independence of the IRS failed, um, state governments failed. But two institutions, uh, and much of the media failed, but the institution that has interestingly been most resistant to Trump is the US military. Um, and I give a number of examples of this in the book, and since the book has come out, we've had more. So I point to, for example, the way the military simply refused to be used for Donald Trump's military parade, mm -hmm. um, which is something he wanted to do as a political homage to himself. And uh, the military 
didn't want to do it. For a lot of, they didn't want to do it because they saw it was political. They also didn't want to do it because they thought it was a waste of time and money. You know, soldiers, it's a very, it's a very demanding job. Um, and it's quite difficult to become one, you know, that, um, but, you know, you can't have a drug record. You uh, have to pass uh, various, you have to graduate from high school. Um, you know, you have to be physically fit. There are more and more young Americans who don't qualify for the military. And soldiers are, they're, they're not, their salaries aren't that high. But when you add up their benefits package, they're quite expensive. And the military has better things to do with them than to make them shine boots and march in line in a way that had some utility in the 19th century, but it's completely detached from anything that a 21st century soldier does. So they hate it. It's just a waste of time and money. Um, plus, if you take military vehicles uh, down city streets, you're going to break the sidewalk and um, you'll have, incur a lot of costs to repave and fix the damage that's done. So they want it out. They also were horrified um, by the events at Charlottesville. And I detail in Trumpocalypse how um, early and unanimously, the senior military leadership um, distanced itself from the things the president said and, said and did after that terrible racial incident. Remember, um, the U.S. military, uh, although many people in the military come from the red states, the military's institution looks actually more like blue state America. The officer corps is very well educated, much better educated than America generally. Not only lots of college degrees, but many, many, I think about 40% of officers have a post-college degree. Um, and it's, of course, much more racially diverse uh, than the country as a whole. Um, and so, you know, that combination of, um, you know, over diversity overall, and then um, a leadership corps that is increasingly highly educated, that looks like Hillary Clinton's America, not like Donald Trump's America. And so even though in many ways it is a conservative institution, it doesn't welcome the racial provocation that is the Trump specialty. You write some prescriptions in this book, things that we can do to help fix, prevent a, a future president from taking on some of the more ominous and destructive uh, traits of uh, Donald Trump. First and foremost, publish tax returns. Mm -hmm. Well, this is something um, this this is something that we all thought was a rule, um, uh, but it, it turns out to be you know just a, a practice. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book is what these, these famous norms that you hear about so much that things that no one had ever written down. We all just took for granted, like you know the pre uh, the president shouldn't operate a business while president. The president shouldn't um, favor his children while president. Um, they they had never really been written down. So some of them I think just have to be written down, or they will go by the by. You know, with the nepotism. Look. Oh my God. Almost all almost all presidents have problematic relatives. <laughs> there's always a, there's always a Billy Carter. Okay. Um, and, uh, Obama, remember Obama had, he had two half brothers that he had the good one, um, who was the, uh, professor of physics. Um, they're both half brothers by different, he had, came from this very complicated family background. So the good brother, um, got himself a teaching appointment at a Chinese university. And just stayed completely out of the limelight, teaching. He was bilingual English and Chinese, completely out of the very brilliant, like a, like half brother Barack. That's it. I, I didn't take questions from the press, you know. Uh, kept his uh, and just kept himself completely out of the picture and didn't try to cash in in any way where, wherever he was, the University of Shenzhen or wherever he was teaching physics. Then there was the bad brother, um, who uh, uh, was Kenyan, 
and kept insisting that Obama himself was Kenyan and would make appearances on the most racially provocative shows on Fox News and uh, incite all kinds of racial paranoia. And he tried to cash in in various ways. There's always a bad relative. But usually, because the president disapproves of this behavior, usually there's a limit. I mean, how much money did Billy, Billy Carter got up to all kinds of nefarious schemes, but he eventually got squashed. And Roger Clinton was, and Hugh Rodham were bad actors. But I think he, they eventually brought Hugh Rodham to live in the White House with the Clintons so that they could keep an eye on him. <laughs> now, there's always a bad, but Trump empowered his children to go around the world raking in tens of millions of corrupt dollars. And we're, so one of the things I suggest along with the publishing tax returns is if you're a member of the president's family and you accept Secret Service protection, you have to publish your tax return too. Now, you, you have a choice. You can do like the good Obama half-brother and say, you know what? I'm a private citizen. I don't want the Secret Service protection. You say, okay, well, in that case, you know, lead your own life. Your, your sibling or half-sibling or uncle uh, became president. Uh, obviously, you, you don't lose your rights to do your business the way you want. But that means you're also agreeing to be a private person and not take the Secret Service protection. You also want us to nuke the filibuster, which is something we think of as maybe constitutional, but it's not. It's just a Senate rule that they make and change all the time. Yeah, the, uh, the filibuster um, came into being. I mean, it, had, it sort of kicked around, but it didn't become important until the 20th century. It was a tool always of the segregation of South. Um, it was amended in the 1970s so, uh, so that um, it became less of an issue. Uh, and it was amended again in the 2010s so you could no longer filibuster judicial appointments. And I just, this got rid of it entirely. I mean, the Senate is so wildly unrepresentative. Even even to get 50 senators uh, doesn't give you anything like a majority of the population. Uh, to then say, okay, the rule will be 60, you take something that the most, one of the world's most unrepresentative legislative bodies, and now you make it even more extremely unrepresentative. Uh, the argument will be raised, someday the Democrats will want to use the filibuster against a Republican majority. And I counter that by saying, um, so long as the filibuster is there, there will never be a Dem – the Democrats will never be able to do anything. Or I should say not the Democrats because who cares about them, but urban America, um, the majority of the country where the wealth is created. Uh, it needs to be allowed to win sometimes. And so long as the filibuster is there, it can win never. You want D.C. to be a state. That's kind of unusual. <laughs> I was heartened to see that. You make perfect sense. Well, I live in the District of Columbia. Um, where I'm a registered Republican, by the way, um, and where I try to vote for Republican candidates when I can. We need a two-party system here in the District of Columbia. Um, but the District of Columbia will soon have a population of about 750,000 people, which is more vast, which is about 100,000 more than either Wyoming or Vermont, and will soon overtake North Dakota and Alaska. Um, we're in a relatively small physical area, uh, but so does so Rhode Island is also physically small, and so is Delaware. Uh, uh, but we have interests too, and more to the point, um, uh, it's a way making DC a statehood is something that can happen without a constitutional amendment. It can happen very fast, uh, and it will rectify the balance in the Senate for to to make the Senate less rural than it is now to give urban America more of a chance. People sometimes ask, "What about Puerto Rico?" And I, I have no objection, but. Um, Every, when Puerto Rico votes, they vote about 55% in favor of statehood, and that's just not enough for a, 
an area that is off the continental United States. You do not want to import into the United States a Catalonia or Quebec problem where you have a state where the majority are happy to be a state, but an important minority is unhappy about being included in the United States. You want, I think I would want to see, you know, here in D.C., we all want to be, you know. Uh, American citizens. I, I would want to see something like a 75 or 80 percent majority from from Puerto Rico, not 40 percent still um, thinking about independence. We've talked about adopting a, a modern rights uh, voting act, modern voting rights act, and deterring gerrymandering, but um, depoliticizing law enforcement again, uh, rather prescient to be writing about that in these times. Um, I've, I've argued again and again in everything I've written about Donald Trump, and I use this language in Trumpocracy, the first of the two Trump books, that the that abusive power in a modern state ex- expresses itself not by persecuting the innocent, which is dangerous to do, but by protecting the guilty. So Donald Trump will talk about uh, indict Obama. He's never done that. But what he has done is pardoned his friends and uh, intervened in the um, justice system in a very corrupt way to protect uh, allies like Flynn, and he's going to try the same with Roger Stone and Paul Manafort. It's to protect the guilty. And uh, I have in the book various suggestions as, as to how to limit the president's power to make law enforcement political. That's something that just isn't the case in other democracies. In other democracies, law enforcement is not political, and that's the way it should be in the United States, too. Well, unfortunately, our uh, attorney general begs to differ, and this is, though he's flowered under Trump. Bill Barr has always been of had a propensity to promote presidential power. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's um, a principled position, I, I, the, 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 Justice Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court, he was for presidential power when the president was Obama, and he was for presidential power when the president was George W. Bush. And and I don't think he's had any big cases on this, but if a case comes up under Donald Trump, Samuel Alito will be for presidential power again. And that's a point of view that smart people can have and honest people can have, so long as it's consistent. Where it's suspicious, and this is the case with Bill Barr, is when you say, I'm for a strong presidential power when the president is a Republican, but I reverse all those views when the president is a Democrat, and I think you're not in favor of presidential power. You're just in favor of your power, party's power. And that is not a view that anybody needs to respect. You talk about uniting us and them, which is really, I think, the most important thing to happen to America. Yet it, it also seems the most difficult thing to accomplish. Um, and yet I think it is something that we really feasibly can do, um, that we have seen the rise of these outside the party movements, Me Too and Black Lives Matter, that, that have touched a kind of ethical, even spiritual core in the American people and have re- reached majorities, not of the usual, you know, 42, 55, but, you know, 70 and 80 percent of Americans. Um, and I, I think we may look back on this and just say this was a passage um, a reaction to the Great Recession, um, a reaction to the um, baby boomers entering their 60s. And, and we may have, and Trump may have done this for us, is, is by setting such a negative example, inspired us to look for more positive examples. The new book by David Frum is Trumpocalypse. Thank you for joining me, David. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.